Yeah, recording. All right, hey, so I don't know if you've seen in any news articles or online or anything that Operations Allies Welcome uh, mission that was conducted at Fort Bliss. You guys are both here for that, right? Yes. So it was, we were talking at about the Fort other Bliss day. and eight other installations. Yeah, I, I don't remember what they were. Uh, I had heard about them getting stood up at the time. I think it was based on uh, land size and available space to conduct that operation. Um, and Fort Bliss just has one of the largest areas because we encompass uh, El Paso, New Mexico, uh, White Sands Missile Range. We got all this available training space and land space that's that's out there for us to use. Um, so we we're talking the other day about what we've done recently, you know, in the last couple of years in the Army, and really that was that was the one big thing that we did, which was a humanitarian mission, which led to another conversation we had, which is the misconception that the Army only does you know, shoot them up, blow them up, combat-based type missions. And we actually do a lot more, case in point, was Operations Allies Welcome. Um, I was not here when it started, so when it very first kicked off, I was actually uh, in support of a training event at the National Training Center, so I wasn't here locally. But, sir, you were you were here, and you were there right at the beginning, right? right at, that was like day one on the job was also day one of Operations Allies Welcome, right? Not quite, but it was like I had gotten here, and then... You got here. We started how? hearing about it. I got here August thirtieth. Well, when did you get to the platoon? Yeah. Okay. Same day August, I got okay. here. Yeah. August thirtieth, twenty one. So it's late August, and we weren't on that operation yet. But we started talking about it. We were expecting that they would be brought here, that we would be supporting it. We didn't know what it looked like as far as support wise, what we'd be doing, any of that shit. Um, all we really heard was that there's thousands of refugees coming to Fort Bliss up by white sands and that uh we'd be doing some sort of like security for them and like basic life support services for them i guess you'd call it um so yeah it was me no platoon sergeant thanks yeah well i was gone uh, yeah it. so it was me and the guys and we got an attachment from uh some other elements in the battalion and we i remember we went out there the first day and you just pull up and it's just tense and tense and tense and tense and tense like as far as you can see out there so it was it was at don anna range complex so you got to imagine there's like there's a decent amount of like hard structure buildings permanent buildings that are there normally for fort bliss for the ranges that are there and then all of a sudden there's hell we had how many tents in our lsa like 13 15 yeah so we had like 13 15 tents that held 100 plus people just in the area that our platoon had uh, multiply that by five or there. six no there was at least seven because we had lsa yeah. seven and there may have even been LSA 8. And more up to the north, yeah. So, like, so. there were thousands um, there. But when we first started, um, it was really just our platoons, LSA, that had people in it yet because they were still flying them over. Um, but, yeah, we kind of just got there, and it was crazy because you'd just drive down the street, and there's just there's Afghan refugees just all over the place, you know? It's like you just drove into Afghanistan. It's pretty cool. And then, Price, you, you've been here for a long time, so you saw... And again, I wasn't here on the ground when it was stood up, but you you saw that area prior to it being the Donna Anna villages is what they called them. Uh, I prefer the villages at Donna Anna, but nobody, <laughs> nobody took my recommendation. Um, and so you had seen that whole area of Donna Anna prior to these guys coming in. Uh, what was it like like before and after when they decided, hey, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to bring these people over here. We're going to build this place for them. Um, paint that like before and after picture. It was kind of crazy, honestly, because, like, 
I remember being there uh, when we had come back from Poland. We had to stay in those hard stand buildings they had for two weeks to do our quarantine for COVID. Yeah, because yeah. that was when yeah that was when COVID had first really like hit. Um, it was crazy just seeing how before all this just empty space that there was never anything there. It was just the desert all of a sudden has all these tents set up and all these showers and all these contractors everywhere setting up all this stuff. And it's just kind of crazy seeing how fast it stood up, but also just how fast it all came down and how now it's gone now. Yeah. We were so used to seeing it out there and now it's back to just being nothing. Yeah. And it's crazy. And so how it kind of started for us, like work wise for the platoon was we, we were told at first we'd be doing like a week on, week off, 12-hour night shifts. And then that quickly changed when they realized that was a terrible idea. Um, and we went to, was it two-on, two-off, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was two-on, two-off, and the 12-hour shifts were really like 14, 16-hour shifts. Because um, of the transportation. Yeah. yeah so, so it was usually about 40-so minutes away from where anyone lives, be it on post or off post down in El Paso. So you'd have to... You'd meet on post at our cough where our battalion's at, get everyone there, get them together, and then we'd take buses all the way up to DAV. Um, that'd be a good hour drive in the bus almost. Yeah. So you got to tack on an hour at the front end, hour on the back end, and these guys are just like, they don't know what they're doing yet. I didn't know what we were doing yet. You're going an hour there and back, and you're working these two long-ass night shifts in a row. Um, so it was tough just getting people motivated to want to be out there in the first place. But it was crazy, like coming there and seeing just how much infrastructure was built for them in such a short span of time. Cause we probably found out about it. I'm assuming the battalion knew about it throughout August, you know, cause we were withdrawing from Afghanistan at that point, um, or at least planning it. Um, and we had an abundance of showers, shitters, the tents, prayer areas, medical facilities like we had that school schools, school building little yeah. room one tent that was dedicated for like the schools um the tents were split up between female male family um so there's a variety of living you know groups that were all divvied up into different buildings oh they had the food yeah so they, they had, had all the, deep, the food facilities we set up and the little little shops that they set up for them to be able to go into um and then just all the department of homeland security stuff for them to work on the out processing to get them out into the U.S. out yeah. of the camp. So civilian contractors, they had their own little areas that were set up. So it was just a mixed bag of all these different people and organizations and facilities and civilians and contractors and military, uh, all divvied up into all these different buildings of different shapes and sizes to offer these different support systems. And um, they were just taking, you know, they had improved the road, so it was all just desert with a couple trails through there, but when I got there, I mean, they had, you know, brought in the bulldozers and, you know, Lay down rock out. and all that. Yep, yeah. lay down like, like a crush rock uh, to create some sort of improved surface, and they were taking the gators through there, they were taking the trucks through there, they had the garbage trucks come through, they had the uh, shower and shitter cleaner uh, trucks <laughs> coming through there, they had the light fixtures that were running, yeah. with the generators that were running, they even had internet. They had Wi-Fi, like in each tent, they had, uh, they were climate controlled, yeah. which was... Within like the first couple of weeks, every tent had Wi-Fi, AC, heat, um, lights, outlets, like everything. Yeah. Um, but it was crazy. So we pulled up. When we first got there, um, how we kind of ran it was like you had 
you had your LSA, which is like the little area that you were responsible for. And we had about maybe 2,000 refugees there at the time. And we just got these little camo nets and like one actual tent for the whole company that we're in. Um, and we'd base ourselves out of that tent that the company's in. And then we had these little camo nets just scattered out throughout the area we were responsible for. And you're kind of just, you're learning. It was a steep learning curve to learn how to work, to figure out how we had to fix what we had to fix. You know, because you got civilian contractors, Homeland Security, the FBI, all these different parties working there to like ensure that they have the basic life support they ha- should have and that everything's safe there for them and they have the facilities they need. And it was just, yeah. There's a lot of phone numbers that you had to call in case <laughs> someone needed something. So you had to call for the Wi-Fi, you had to call for the AC, the HVAC. Uh, we had our own reporting mechanisms in place. So we were calling up for our reports that we had to conduct. Uh, checking on our guys who were spread out amongst these these tarped tented buildings that we had um, so there was all these different moving pieces that yeah we had to figure out how to coordinate and what's interesting is like a lot of these things that happen um, these humanitarian type missions that we just do throughout the whole world it's never been done before so this isn't there's no blueprint for this there was yeah. no um, there's a lot of ideas hey I think it'll work if we do it like X y and Z or you know, but then there's the human element where you can't predict how these people are going to act and react and behave and interact with us. And, and what things. needs they're going to end up needing. Right. What requests the yeah. they're going to have that we didn't think of. You know, we tried, but we, we didn't even think of that, you know. And so it's hard to gauge, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work. So we got there. We took the night shift. You know, you guys were out there from uh, what uh, seven? It wasn't like seven to seven? 1900 it was, it was like to six, Yeah, it was like 1800 to six in the morning yeah but i think you got on the ground there because that hour yeah so yeah yeah, it was like anyways it was like early evening um these guys were on a different time schedule because they still had people back home or they had ties back home so they were you know up at like zero two in the morning or something to make phone calls and be on their phones and be active and start waking up super early uh so we'd get there in the evening and it'd be generally pretty quiet but then the sun was still up so they'd be you know kids would be outside playing and the kids were unsupervised just running around um you know doing whatever they wanted and um language barriers it was so you can't predict all that right so the army just comes in and says hey we have an overall mission which is to provide support for these refugees and let the department of homeland security and these other agencies essentially um tie them into the u.s system and then relocate them somewhere else to continue their life. So we're just really there in the middle man position, trying to make sure everything stays organized chaos, you know, as much as possible. So and like, so what we were responsible for at first was like, we'd have our we'd have our little patrols with all the camo nets and everything as far as the infrastructure went was like our job. So like, you'd go and check all the tents, make sure like the actual structure was okay. Make sure the power was working, the Wi-Fi was working, the AC was working. Make sure the latrines in the shower. So, like, all that thing was, like, all of a sudden an armor guy's job, you know? Yeah. To, like, be able to understand, comprehend, and be like, who do I call if this is fucked up? Who do I notify if this is an issue? Like, so that was kind of our first priority when we hit the ground was that. And then just making sure that the whole area was safe for them to go about their business. And then... Uh, the other the other hard thing to do is is to you know the buy in to get the guys to care because I mean it's not their job right so we just said they're armor guys or tanker guys so now we're up you know overnight not seeing you know our families and things like that whether 
you know, they have a family or just their normal routine of life, you know, take them out of that normal routine and say, hey, now you're working nights, overnight. Um, working this humanitarian mission and you're not touching your tank now right. for, for months. And you know? it sounds good on the surface, right? Like, hey, you're, but you're doing something humanitarian. You're helping people. And I don't know, you, you kind of just assume, especially when you come in the Army, you kind of already assume there's people out there with that job already, right? I mean... So I always kind of imagine, well, if I'm going to do something humanitarian, I'm going to do the security aspect of it, yeah. right? So I'm going to do maybe a checkpoint or I'm going to set up my tank at like a, a road intersection and I'm going to provide local security for the humanitarian people to do what they do. I didn't think I would be the person off the tank on the ground doing, you know, walking around helping people, trying to speak to them in their language and ask them if the Wi-Fi is working, you know? Yeah. And I think that was, I think what you're talking about was like probably better understood by GWAT era dudes, you know, and GWAT era Joes, when like you were deployed. Oh, we don't have any GWAT era. Well, Joes. that's what I'm saying. Like they understood that GWAT. You got the GWAT coming in price? You did? Yep. Oh, you know, that's nice. the last one, last yeah, I think year, I was... last class, last. You came in what year? 2017. 17. So I got year. it for going to Kuwait. Oh, so you got it for going to Kuwait? You yeah. didn't get it for OSIT. Oh no no. no. Oh, okay, so that's right. Yeah, I just came out with the two basic ones, and then... okay, so they had already stopped by then. Yeah. So GWAT, I mean, that was something that I got back in the day, and you know, we all got it because we we joined at like a known time of war. So it's like, yeah. hey, good job, you. Thank you for joining the army when you know here in about five months you're going to be going on a plane somewhere. Yeah. You know, but like uh, those people had that experience. Of yeah, going downrange and having to do like key leader engagements and worrying about civil considerations with mm -hmm. people. You know, and now you have probably through field grade at that point. You know, that haven't deployed officer wise, and then you definitely had at least platoon sergeant possibly in the low chance first sergeants that like hadn't deployed and had to deal with those things so like your higher levels of leadership didn't understand how to how to run that game yet sure as hell fucking lt me and all the joes had no clue what we were doing but and i mean that always happens like tankers were fucking clearing rooms and uh, yeah well yeah i mean when, like, so when i came in that was a huge part of the training we did all the uh all the National Training Center, the Joint Multinational, all those places, they were all doing coin operations, so very little force-on-force, -force, tank on tank type stuff. They were doing, hey, let's go into this town, like you said, key leader engagements, pull security on rooftops, talk to the local population, see what's going on, winning the hearts and minds, all those kinds of things. Uh, but even that is different because that's on foreign soil, right? So there's that mm -hmm. immediate threat that exists. So you're doing those things in order still to still fight the guy. On top of that. Now. Right. Yeah. And you're doing it combat oriented. You know, I don't talk to this key leader. Because I want to know what's going on. Because I want to find this bad guy, right? Yeah. Where's the money coming from? Where are the bombs coming from? Where are the supplies coming from? You know, um, who's in here when I we're not in there recruiting people? So there's that combat, you know, oversight of what you're doing here. I mean, you know, you're taking a school bus to get to Donna Anna villages to go help people. There's no, there's no threat. There's yeah. no, you know. It's hard to incorporate the understanding at the lowest level of like this is part of your job because it it nor it by description isn't right, but it is, you know. It's like, because, it's like an implied task yeah. of what we do. And know? it's it's crazy because the Army's that one entity that, like, we set up this whole complex for 10,000-plus refugees in a matter of, like, three, four weeks. Like, all these – and we're talking one large-ass tent that only houses 100 people. So think 10,000 refugees. Mm -hmm. All those tents, all those facilities that those tents required, the – The infrastructure that they required, all that shit, it got set up in a matter of a month. Like, who the hell can do that shit? And yeah. then and then bring people in to support it. And it's, yeah. it's us. Like, Slave labor. 
slave labor. <laughs> we weren't getting paid more. Um, so in the first 30 days, was there any like uh, anything interesting, anything noteworthy, a funny story, a crazy situation? So I would imagine things were a little more chaotic in the first 30 days. So I got there uh, towards the very end of September. I had gone in support of like a guest OC for NTC right as it stood up. So I remember going and I, I did a terrain walk of the area before anything was set up. That was one of the last things I did was go and they're like, okay, we're going to template that our area of operations is going to be from here to here, just on the dirt. We was like, I think from here to here, we're going to have some buildings here. We're going to do some things over there. How do we want to split it up? We had just, it was like a map, you know, that they had drawn templated buildings. And then we drove out there to get a visual understanding of that space. Uh, so we had done one or two of those. Um, and then I left and I got on a bus and went to California and then I got back and you guys had already been doing it for like 25 days. Yeah. I think a lot of the difficulties difficulties that we had with was a lot of it was language barrier and then also understanding that and it's I had like some foreknowledge of it um, but the different tribal areas and the different geographical areas where these people are coming from in Afghanistan like they're going to speak different dialects of Pashto and Dari um, they're going to have different beliefs and ways they go about things um, different customs and courtesies like and that ended up turning into some situations that were fun, um, diffusing them. But like, what was there any good example, like specific examples, or um, something so that happened that was at the start? We all liked to go, and a couple of us would go and like try to buy some stuff for the kids because you had you had a lot of kids, like toddlers through like you know yeah, full grown that. men, yeah. like yeah. Um, and like myself. A couple of our NCOs and stuff would like to go to the store. We'd go to Walmart, whatever, and go buy balls, shoes, just like some shit for them to play with. Because obviously they didn't hop on a fucking plane from Afghanistan with toys for the toys. kids, you know. Yeah. And now the kids are stuck here in the desert in these camps, and like the kids don't have shit to do all damn day, so yeah. they want to go do something. Um, so we'd bring boy, uh, t- I can't even talk, balls and shoes and all that shit for them. Um, and there was one instance we had where an NCO had brought in um, a bunch of shoes and toys and stuff, brought it into one of the family tents because they were segregated, family males and females that were single. Um, and just the two, apparently we had two different groups of people that are from different areas in Afghanistan um, who had some misunderstandings with the way that the items were being distributed within the tent. Um, and that got physical. And all we hear on the net is uh, Sergeant Slavings calls up on the net and just starts screaming, they're fighting us. And so <laughs> it's fucking, it was Price and me and we all just go running down there and just big brawl, and then we split it all up. And you guys took off running. I hadn't done PT in so damn long. I got like halfway there, and I had to stop and just walk. And I was like, "They're already there. I'm good. They, they got they it. Got I'll it. get there when I get there." So, what were they fighting? The soldiers? No, no, no. The the refugees. We're fighting each other. Yeah. Yes, over the shoes and the the balls and everything. Who won? Ah, nobody. Because oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, like we got in there and we started splitting people up and and you know doing what we had to do to diffuse the situation like stop the fight in the moment and next thing you know you got the fbi showing up you got the mps showing up and a a couple of people got pretty injured pretty badly and they had to get sent up to the hospital and it was just like instances like that that were i think at first hard for us to understand because it was like hey we're bringing items Mm -hmm. you know trying to trying to make this place that kind of fucking sucks for you i'm sure you know you just got picked up from your your home at no accord of your own like you had no power in that choice there um, you get brought to Germany or some other place in the EU, then you get brought to Bliss, and now you're just here. Mm-hmm. Like, 
None of them have heard of El Paso, Texas. And I'm sure there wasn't like a, a fully structured timeline yet on the individuals either letting them know yeah. when they were going to be done. So, hey, you will only be at Fort Bliss for, you know, 22 days. Mm-hmm. After 22 days, we're going to really, there was none of that. It was like, hey, just, you know, classic army, hurry up and wait type idea. Yeah. Hey, hurry up and get here, get settled quickly. And then just hang tight because this is going to take as long as it takes. Like in that first month, like I wasn't able to, because I'd always get asked. They would ask my Joes, they'd come bring them to me and like I wouldn't be able to give any guidance on like, here's the way forward. Like, because I, I didn't know. DHS was still figuring that out, um, just manning wise and how they were going to do the paperwork. But I think towards probably October, we started having like a solid picture of how the steps they would take. So like. They'd come in, they'd have an interview, they'd do a background check and biometrics and all that, and then they'd have a, like a very, very thorough medical screening. You know, they'd get to go through dental, see a dentist, mm-hmm. get their vaccines. We had MaxVax, um, and they'd go through all these different steps, and then finally we could get to the point where we're talking about a day where you guys are going to be able to just ship out of here, you know, and go wherever. Yeah. And they had, from my understanding, um, they could choose anywhere they wanted in the U.S. Yeah. Um, That's what, But then I guess, so... On that though, that it turned into, weren't some places not allowing it by state? My understanding was that at some know. point some states were were not uh, agreeing to that, and then also I do know for a fact at the end some places were no longer available as options, and I don't know if they were limited to how many could go to each state or under what circumstances uh, but some of them were no longer options some yeah. states were not options because the other thing too is like it wasn't as if like hey i'm here i'm at bliss you know and i choose to go to new york you know it's not like it's not like i got a plane ticket and i just went straight to new york i'm on my own because they went to i mean for lack of a better term they went to a halfway like house halfway, yeah, where saying, they would you know they'd get set up there and have free housing there for a period of time where they can you know figure out where they're at Figure out some sort of government welfare. Yeah, get some support financially, get some support healthcare wise, um, before they got sent out to either you know go get a job or do whatever they wanted to do in that city or area that they picked. But yeah, I don't I don't really know about that whole state thing. And I, and I remember too, like telling myself, reminding myself, because it was crappy, you know, to not see your family and then two days on, two days off. The two days off wasn't really off, you know, because we we get off at off the buses back at Fort Bliss at like you know 6 7 30 in the morning and that was considered your day off first day off um but you were coming off a night shift you're going to sleep so the the following day you would be off um yeah you do your two shifts and then you had a day off you had two days off yeah so you'd, yeah but you'd that be first sleeping day, that first day right so you know it's but kinda, you'd come into work that second day too to do to do maintenance your stuff quote unquote <laughs> so my point being though you know you don't really want to go out and do this and and you know, felt like kind of glorified babysitting. and uh, But I had to remind myself, you know, how do these people feel? Because it is true. And I remember what brought it to light for me. And one of the one of the times was some guy was asking me where I was from. I said, well, I'm from California. He says, oh, well, I'm thinking I'm going to choose to go to California, Northern California, an expensive area of Northern California. And he was asking about it. I said, oh, man, you know, he well, actually he specifically asked me, well, how much is a home? I said, and this is, you know, a year ago. The, the market wasn't as bad as it is now, but it's bad. It's California. And I remember telling him, I mean, a home in California, northern California, up by Sacramento, San Francisco, those areas, those Bay areas you're talking about, I mean. You're going to be paying for that shit. $650,000, yeah. $800,000, yeah. U.S. dollars. And you just saw his eyes, you know, and 
they're, so they're asked to pick where do you want to go in the U.S. They have no frame of reference. You know, yeah, it's I mean, they've heard of hell, California, yeah. Florida, New York, probably. And I want to go to one of those places, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, well, how are you going to go as a foreign national, language barrier, no, you know, real understanding of how the the culture and society works here necessarily, and then afford to live somewhere like Northern California. And it kind of brought to my attention that maybe they're not really getting a whole lot of guidance on yeah. this decision making process because yeah. these guys are like, you know, I'm going to be government welfare, living in a place that costs. You know, upwards of half a million dollars for a home. Like a lot of the, and it was interesting because like a vast majority of them understood English. Yeah, there were a lot. Vast majority of them. Yeah. Maybe couldn't speak or read it, but like a vast majority of them, we could at least communicate through English. Well, I would say most of the males. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the males worked so close with soldiers for so long that they were very good. Depending on where they were from, yeah. And the kids, not so much. Kids, not so much. Uh, Because the kids would always come up and ask me for things or say, and I was like, oh man, I don't know what you're. And they would just keep saying it in, in their native language. They keep saying it. I'm like, I and I'd just start whipping out the Google yeah. Translate, and I'd be typing up questions and showing it to them. And that, that worked out sometimes. But what was I going to say? Well, so they understand English. You know, they, they converse yeah. oh, in, yeah, I was in English. Say, but... I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the like, actual conversations that would set them up for success happened at like, our level. Not necessarily through DHS or anyone else. Well, DHS is going to have like a one-on-one conversation with somebody. And it's very... 10,000. Yeah, you know? know? So it's very throughput oriented, I'm sure, on their end. And they're working on the paperwork, the USCIS paperwork to get them a work permit, whatever it might have been for that person. They probably give them some like very simple resources. Like, here, look at this paper. Here's a map of the U.S. Where do you want to go? And they they did have one posted outside the I don't know. but. But like a lot of those conversations ended up happening through us, you know, where we're maintaining the facilities and then we're also we realize like you said like they're not getting these this this advice this guidance that would help them in yeah. making these i mean pretty big damn choices like this is yeah. where you're going to live probably for quite a while once you get there yeah um and like our soldiers were providing that for them it was it was crazy which probably got some unqualified terrible advice if i know my soldiers um <laughs> you know i don't know hey just go to miami and disney world you know, that was their sense of their guidance, probably. Oh, dude, go buy a Mustang GT. Yeah, go buy, go buy a Camaro. You can get it for like 28%. Dude, 28% here? That's pretty low. That's man. low. That's nothing. If I can afford it, you can. It was cool, too, because we, we had a lot of A&A guys towards the end. Um, and they were all like, they were super grateful, awesome to work with. A lot of yeah. them spoke pretty good English. Yeah. Um, and they're all like, yeah, man, like I want to join the fucking U.S. Army now. And all that. So, like, I want to pay this back to you. I just I want to be in the army anyway. May it, whatever it might have been. And that was neat too. Yeah, they. I mean, for all the chaos that was going on, they they were they seemed pretty overall pretty grateful. I mean, I'm sure in their minds it was like, hey, I just got an opportunity at the American Dream. You know, whether it's accurate or not necessarily, yeah. or how it's all going to shake out. I mean, they're they're given this opportunity to come to the U.S. Uh, you know, with with us footing the bill essentially, and kind of give them yeah. that opportunity, that start. And yeah, I mean, other thing they lost on the way, you know, is is very sad. I'm sure some of them were very heartbroken about a lot of different things uh, coming over, but at least, DHS, at least I feel like we did the right yeah. thing. I mean, DHS did the best they could. I mean, you look at how expensive a visa is to get into the U.S. Yeah. from certain countries, and how long it takes, and how long it takes, and then on top of that, how long it takes to get citizenship or a yeah. work visa or something, and how expensive that is. Yeah, and I mean, all of that was that was free. Yeah, and it was expedited, and it was done on site here, and it was done on site. I'm assuming at all the the other seven installations that this was done at. Yeah, um, and they got to walk out of here, you know, in the new city that they chose, 
um, with a work visa or whatever, free of cost, and they're they're legally here, and they're I'm pretty sure also they got like a stimulus. Like uh, when that, they got I, I was hearing that too, and I, I don't know how accurate it was. We weren't part of that uh, official conversation. I think what my understanding was like ten ten thousand dollars or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kind of settlement. You know. Cash get incentive. your feet under yourself yeah, to you know, get moving here. Uh, and then government welfare for a period of time. Um, the relocation was, was paid for. So, I mean, shoot. Yeah. It's, I mean, just about as good as I think we could have done. Yeah. You know? Yo, Byron, where am I stimmy at? <laughs> I'm getting stimmy. We're done with stimmies at this point. I need a I keep hearing about them. I, I, I also keep, saw something on TikTok talking I, about. I keep seeing articles and stuff and. Uh, they're supposed to give uh, the the lower list of guys a little stimmy. Did you see that? Yeah. That's coming out, and now we're getting off off topic. Where's my stimmy? Uh, I don't know if you get it. I think I think you and I get paid a little bit too much. There's a cutoff. Ah. Uh, and since you get crazy. paid, I think damn near, if not what I get paid, I get paid less than you do. But not by much. If it is, it's not by much. No, nah, it's like grand a month. No, I've never heard about. You get paid quite a bit. But... It's so it's it's uh legitimate. It's I'm not I'm not you know not not private news network information. I just can't remember the figures off the top of my head. So it's supposed to be so you know the cost of living has been going up, um, yeah. with everything food, like gas, groceries. Rent. Like groceries. I remember when milk was like a dollar ninety eight a gallon, and yeah. now it's like four dollars. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, and so they're talking about if you get paid under a certain cap, which I want to say is somewhere in like the forties, low fifties annually. Um, and I don't know that I, I don't know if that's base pay or you know incentive. I don't know. I can't remember what the article said, but essentially. If you get paid under that, which is your lower enlisted, generally speaking, guys, there was going to be a monthly stimulus or a percentage increase in pay uh, for I all those guys. should just increase the damn pay. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well... It's not like this is a temporary thing. Right. Or a short-term thing. Right. And I mean, like, I'm still getting impacted... Everyone is. ...equally you to know? what yeah. the... You know, like, the whole concept of the military pay chart is, yes, my pay goes up, but so do my, my responsibilities... You know, and and my time and my effort, and by now my life has you know become more expensive. Right, I got family, I've got kids, which isn't to say that you know E three E four guy doesn't either. But the idea is that I've grown in the military, I've gotten older, my cost of living personally has gone up, but so I'm still getting impacted by the same cost of living increases that the U S is seeing. Yeah. So if we're gonna increase military pay, just increase it. Yeah. Why are we picking and choosing who's gonna benefit? You know, and then what happens to that guy who's just over the cap and he's a staff sergeant and there's a sergeant and now the sergeant gets paid pretty much what he gets paid. Yeah. What's the incentive of being a staff sergeant and doing the extra work that sometimes comes like, with fuck, that? And... Fuck the rank. They, it should just be, well, that's there. How they're they should be there to offset the inflation. Right. Period, it should be. You know? It should be. But now they're, they're incorporating rank into it by putting a cap on it, which creates like a discrepancy, right? Which makes it cheaper for them. It does. Of course. Yeah. Right? Know, so like they feel like they're helping the people who need the help the most, yeah. which isn't necessarily untrue. You know, but at the same time, they're also cutting people out of that yeah, help. Yeah. You know, and who's why? That's a, that's a kind of a, a unfair determination for them to make. You know, some guy makes fifty two thousand five hundred, and some guy makes fifty thousand five hundred. One gets it, and one doesn't, because what a, a two thousand dollar a year difference. You know, yeah. like Just okay, nothing. You know, should help me. That child support's kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> my child's kicking my ass. I can't relate. <laughs> I can't relate. Thank God. But so back to back to Dab. I mean, it was crazy. It was cool. Um, I mean, I'm always glad to be a part of something that's. You it was know, very fulfilling. I think it was. I think so too. And I think we had kids, a, like. I think a lot of guys had to overcome a little bit of bias, right? I mean, these were our, not these people specifically, but the country of origin we're talking about. I mean, was our enemy, 
two months ago at the time of doing this 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 humanitarian effort. So it's kind of hard to think, well, I know guys who went over there and fought over there and died over there. Now these people come over here and I got to give them my time to come out here at night and make sure your your AC and your Wi-Fi is working while my wife and daughter are at home, you know, to take care of the enemy, you know? So Especially I think when they, good. Didn't, they didn't have that understanding, like it, maybe from the Joe perspective or whatever, like if they didn't really understand the war in Afghanistan and like what the people had to deal with right. from the Russians, uh, what was it, the fucking Al-Qaeda to the Taliban to ISIS. Yeah. Like, they've had to go through this for however, since what, the I mean, that whole 80s? region of the world has gone through. <laughs> conflict, constantly. Like, they've, Forever. They've, they've grown up, depending on where they've lived in that country, in conflict for decades and yeah. decades and decades. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Sorry. <laughs> I think it's really good character building, though, right? I think that's another aspect of the humanitarian stuff that really humbles you and makes you see, you know, and... and understand what you have at home and things and you understand that you're also in a job that you're in a position to provide these things for people right you know which is yeah so i thought that was really cool um i hope I hope some of the guys i don't think we ever had that conversation specifically i think we we're just happy to be off of it you know no yeah. matter how you felt about it i think we were happy to not be doing that anymore it was very taxing very tiring um you know we had other work responsibilities we had to focus on because we went uh we came out of dav just to do a gunnery um and so we came to do the GST portion, which is kind of the pre-training of gunnery. We started doing that, but it was just so rushed, so fast. We had guys who had come from Red Cycle. So they had, they had done OSIT, the one station unit training to be a tanker. They finished that initial training phase. They got to Fort Bliss. Our unit was doing some Red Cycle, so we were doing some support tasks. We were helping um, uh, at the gates of the installation. We were doing color guard for division we were doing um uh, funeral honors for the whole region so we had all these different tasks and details that we were doing that took us away from our tanks and training and all these things so we had done red cycle tasking leading into this humanitarian mission for the donna anna villages uh, oaw we did that for all of september all of october we stopped to come out and do tank services so we had Soldiers who were new in the army, new from OSEC, not touch their tanks for a period of time. And they come out and do an in-depth tanks tank services that were shortened because we had to go back to OAW. So we only were given this time just for tank services. So I think we were given a total of, was it two weeks or three weeks? It was. With like the extra equipment that we had. It was, to do. I think it was, it was three weeks. It was a week for whole, a week for turret, and a week for ancillary. Yeah. Um, for annual services where you're generally given quite a bit more time to do yeah. that. Um, but yeah, like you said, you had tankers who hadn't done tank shit. And beyond doing tank shit, they hadn't touched their damn tank mm-hmm. in a very long time. Because even when we were on the humanitarian mission, you know, you do your two days on, you got two days off, that first day you're sleeping. Second day you come into work and it's, what are you really going to get done? Yeah. Because the whole battalion was at the humanitarian mission too. So you don't have parts coming in. Your, yeah, mechanics, support. your, your mechanics may not be there that day that you have off. Um, so just kind of just come in and do what you can and then all right, you got your two shifts again. So it was that way all the way through service, all the way up to services, had services and went back out at a smaller size, smaller requirement yeah. um, through through damn near December. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, um, we, we finished right as Thanksgiving came. Yeah. Then we went on holiday block leave, came back in January and it was just feet hit the ground fucking running into gunnery in February. Yeah. 
um, and it showed. <laughs> yeah. It showed um, during GST, during our simulator time, like just how long these guys haven't done tank stuff. All the perishable skills were gone, you know, so scanning techniques and switchology, fire commands, uh, the machine guns, uh, even things like MRS updates, foresighting. We had people, you know, transition into the gunner's position on paper, but they not having it. been a gunner yeah. at all or on a tank. for Administratively with soldiers, never mind the technical aspect of right. like actually being a gunner. So all of a sudden you're in garrison full time now in a normal environment and you got gunners that haven't damn near been gunners. Right. I think I was the only experienced gunner that gunnery. Slavings had been to a gunner. Nope. No, not as a gunner. Not as a gunner. That was no. his first yeah. one as a gunner. Yeah, it's just you. You were the only gunner who had been to a gunnery as a gunner. Yeah. Yeah, because Hire wasn't there for that gunnery, so we had you with Benton. Yeah. Who had not gunned myself and Kempeta. Kempeta had not gunned, uh, and then slavings. Slavings for the commander. And then it was just me and. Sergeant Howard. Yeah. 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 So I mean, at the cost of. Our readiness and our skill set and our job in MOS, you know, we did this humanitarian mission thing, which was cool in its own right. Um, you know, we didn't have a hugely impactful role at <clears throat> Donna Anna. We were there as a support element, and we just did the best we could with what we had, uh, interacting with the population as much as we could, helping where we could, responding to as much as possible, um, definitely trying to represent the country well. I mean, I know... There were issues at OAW, but none of it was on on us. I know none of our guys were any of the guys who had those problems, those issues, interacting with our population that we were in charge of. Um, so, I think overall it went it went well. We did everything we could to provide like the best quality of life for them, and then yeah, just hit the ground running when we got back, and it was fun. <clears throat> that shit was rough. But it's crazy how not because now we've been through a gunnery. We've been through platoon sticks. We've been through company sticks and Calfax. Well, and gunnery was crew gunnery and platoon gunnery. Yeah. So, so it was actually a 21-day yeah. field problem, which nobody had really had done no. before that were new. And our soldiers hadn't been in the field that long. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. Like yeah, they hadn't done. gunnery ever. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast day for that gunnery. That gunnery was... Uh, because, because of that reason, right? So because we had missed all this training, we had missed all this time... They were like, okay, how much can we pack into this 21-day gunnery? And it was just crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talking about running. It was just nonstop. Yeah. Like, there was days where I'd be up in the tower, BCE, come down and get, like, three hours of sleep. And then I'm up waiting to go shoot that night. And yeah. then I'm up all night just to go BCE back in the tower to VCE again. We were running night lanes all the way until the sun came up and we had to go cold to get in line to shoot day right after you know so it was just one one thing was bleeding into another constantly and it was it was very very challenging for everyone it was a steep learning curve but it's crazy to see how far everyone's come yeah. from from january um having literally zero experience in probably a year like all of 2021 really not doing their job yeah well and before that right i mean because 2020 that was covid yeah, I mean, I was near, so... I don't no, know. but what you knew. I yeah. mean, that's what was... You know, 2020 we, was supposed to consist of Poland, and then yep. we got pulled out of that, and then yeah. just basically went immediately on red cycle. So yeah. having not done your job for like a year, year and a half... Two. Yeah, because well, yeah, so when we came back from Poland, um, 
that was when they were really big on the uh, like the essential workers. Yeah, that was what like January, February of twenty twenty. February, March of twenty twenty. Yeah, because yeah, we were supposed to do the Defender twenty twenty. Yeah, and all that got canceled. Um, so yeah, it was like that time, and I was a part of just like the non essential. So I didn't go to work for like a month or two. The fuck. Yeah, and that was when like they had a lot of people out on railhead. Because all the vehicles were coming back. Yeah. So they were downloading that. And yeah, after I got out of... If you weren't on Railhead, you weren't at work. Yeah. yeah. And I had just gotten out of... So a lot of the people that um, were considered the essential ones were the ones that didn't... That were on later flights to go to Poland. Mm-hmm. So basically everyone that was in Poland for those two weeks were considered like the non-essentials. Mm. So that's why we got all that extra time because like basically we missed a month because we were in Poland for two weeks, but then we had to come back and do the two weeks of quarantine at Donna Anna. So we were gone for a month. Yeah. And so we just got... Some time back. <clears throat> a lot of time back. And now I just take that shit. <laughs> <laughs> not so, for much longer. Yeah, not for much longer. We have all the time in the world. Yeah. Too much time. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about all that training that happened because that's going to be another another topic. That was actually really fun. Um, all that stuff we did, uh, we've done since, really, since January to now. It's been awesome training. We've done some really great stuff. Uh, did very well collectively, individually. Grew a lot. And there's a lot of funny stories and things to talk about there. So really, I think tonight was just kind of framing for that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then we can tie back in uh, and, and illustrate how the cost to the soldiers, the cost to us doing that and being away from our tanks and our jobs and how that impacted that training, but it was a very cool experience, you know, uh, and maybe that sheds a little light, I don't know how clearly, but, you know, when you do see it um, in articles and on the news and things, I know that um, there's been some conversations about, oh, you know what they're doing at Fort Bliss, they've got these guys, they're here from Afghanistan. There was a lot of people who were worried about like there's terrorists or there's there's bad influences here influences here um, that are yeah, like, no. dipping into the population. But you know, like our stories showed and what we did. I mean, we walked around fixing air conditionings and Wi-Fi, and they were great fun people. Yeah, it was I, it was a good experience. It was cool. It was humbling and and interesting and um, rewarding, but also a little tiring and frustrating. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll get into the training cycle. Yeah, so next time will be what we did at that, that bullshit tactical gunnery for 21 days and everything that followed after that. So, yeah. Deuces. Scouts out. Never. Never <laughs> scouts out. Tanks out front, baby. <laughs>